Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is, or at least should be, the first show of 2017, and we're joined by Mr. Paul Holmes. Paul, welcome. Hi, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. 2017 is underway, and at the very least, should not be any worse than 2016, so it has that going for it. Mm. It's going to be an interesting year. Hmm. I'm not sure I wholeheartedly agree that it couldn't be any worse, but... Uh... Let's try and be optimistic. Okay. <laughs> In the absence of anything else. But actually, we're here to talk about, um, well, 2016 in a sense, but I suspect a lot of this conversation will focus on 2017. In particular, your annual review of mergers and acquisitions in the public relations market, which... Uh, was published earlier this week. Um, another busy year, I think 61 deals, which was uh, 61 deals that we tracked, uh, which was the same as 2015. Yeah, um, absolutely the identical number, which is a weird statistical coincidence. It is weird. And and again, that, that basically amounts to the most we've seen since prior to the financial crisis of 2008. Yeah, um, and I don't know. I don't know whether it's just me. It seemed like more to me. I mean, it seemed like a busy year to me, but it was a lot of micro deals. It was a lot of very, very small transactions. Ha, ha, and, and to what do you attribute that pattern? So it's hard to know whether what is cause and what is effect, right? So. Um, the the thing that is the thing that's obvious from the data is that for the most part the big holding companies that dominated M and A for so many years are simply no longer quite as active as they were. Um, you know, we the, the the sort of headline finding was that fifty nine percent of the deals were conducted by um, independent PR firms. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know the the sort of flip side of that, obviously, is that relatively few of them were conducted by the the sort of traditional holding companies. I mean, I think there were there were four deals by Interpublic, one deal by Omnicom, three deals by Publicis, one, two deals by WPP and one deal by Edelman, if you want to sort of count them as a giant holding company, which they almost are these days. Um, And, you know, so it's hard to tell. Are are those firms not interested in the PR sector anymore and so not a lot of deals are getting done? Um, Or is there so little left to buy that's of interest to those agencies that they've pulled back? Mm. Why do you think um, so many of the big players were less active? Do you think there's a general view that public relations firms are not especially good buys and that they're better off spending their money elsewhere? I, I certainly get the impression that the leaders of PR agencies in, the, in, in Omnicom, Interpublic, and WPP in particular – 
have a hard time making the case to um, whoever the purse strings are held by. Um, that PR is where the investment should be made right now. Um, all of those groups, I suspect, are making decisions based both on money and probably even more importantly today, uh, time, because, you know, deals take time. And I think that most of them believe that there are more attractive, profitable um, targets for that money and time um, than PR agencies. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the resources are going to, um, you know, digital and social data and analytics um, much more than they are towards PR. Um, and it's only um, relatively infrequently that um, that a big that a big PR deal gets done. Um, you know, I think you can look at some of the deals that got got done this year, and and um, and you'd say that actually PR almost came came along, you know, by accident um, as part of a larger advertising acquisition, uh, part of a bigger strategic partnership. Um, mm. You know, I think um, and and. You know, we're counting this as a PR deal because it was a PR agency doing the acquiring. Um, but Golan's right. acquisition of Brooklyn Brothers, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, is is an acquisition of an ad agency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I was going to make that point because we're seeing that as well when when so-called PR agencies are the acquirers. You know, they're they're often not buying other PR agencies. As the point you made, they're often buying firms that are more focused on digital and content. I mean, often these firms are PR agencies, but have chosen to describe themselves as digital or content firms, perhaps because it helps them <laughs> when they want to sell. Yeah. Um, but I think that that point is is clear that you know if if you're a you know for want of a better word a conventional let's say mid or, or, or large sized PR agency, there is seems to be less interest in buying you unless you have a, you bring a, I guess, a, a geographic element to your offering. Yeah. But if you look at, if you look at, for example, the two deals that got done by next 15 last year mm. um, or the three deals that got done by W2O, mm -hmm. I don't, any of the firms that were acquired in those deals um, would, would so they certainly wouldn't self-identify as public relations firms right um, you know and in, in, in many cases they're bringing something to the party that simply doesn't exist in the in the PR universe yeah indeed indeed and um, one of the points you made I thought that was quite interesting um, was the, the the flurry of activity in the healthcare sector, um, Pegasus? I mean, that that is an example, I guess, of, of, a, of a reasonably large agency being sold. Pegasus in the UK, and you could probably say the same for Revive Health in the US. But a sector specialism um, is that something that surprised you? Um, a little bit, because you know, I think if you talk to most people in the healthcare space. Um, they would say that this is not a particularly great time for healthcare. You know, we've, we've been talking about this for a while, but, um, you know, pharma pipelines are not full of big new blockbusters. 
there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, particularly in the US, about what the healthcare landscape is going to look like 12 months from now. Um, you know, the, the potential for repeal and non-replacement of Obamacare um, would, would, I think, make a lot of people nervous. Um, having said that, um, the, the two big deals that you've already mentioned in the healthcare space were um, Pegasus in the UK, um, which, um, you know, which, which has traditionally been focused more on the consumer health side of the business. Mm. Um, and which um, was acquired by a specialist healthcare holding company, mm-hmm. um, and so sort of that made sense uh, as a as a sort of standalone deal. Um, and the acquisition of Revive Health um, by Weber Shandwick in the U.S. And in that particular instance, you're talking about a very successful sort of um, fast-growing boutique firm with a very clear focus, uh, not on the pharma side of the business, but on healthcare providers, um, hospital systems, and medical technology, um, that that I actually think, you know, for Weber Shandwick, works as a hedge against the pharma industry taking a huge hit. In other words, if if pharma continues to, to struggle, um, they now have a fairly large chunk of their healthcare practice that is dedicated to, um, you know, the newer, more innovative side of the business, particularly med tech. So, you know, both of those deals make sense in that case. Yeah. And remember that we're talking about we're talking about five or six deals total, which, you know, yeah, it's 10% of the activity, but in real terms, it's a fairly small number. And so, you know, don't 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 discount the fact that we could, in fact, just be talking about a statistical blip, right? Sure. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Weber. I mean, in comparison to the other groups, uh, Interpublic has been pretty acquisitive. We talked about that on this podcast last year. Um, and Weber Shandwick in particular has been a beneficiary of that acquisition activity. They've bought, there's been a number of firms that have been acquired over the last three years or so. And that does rank as a, as a contrast to the other big holding groups. Well, I think there are two things that are interesting um, to, to sort of at least ask in that context. The first is, you know, is, is that happening because Weber Shandwick has been notably outperforming the um, the other publicly traded PR agencies. In other words, Weber Shandwick's you know really sort of expanded its uh, its lead as the number one agency among all of the publicly traded firms, mm. um, and so it's is it being rewarded um, for that growth and perf- performance with um, access to deep pockets. Um, the second thing is you know I I'd, I'd, I'd argue that Weber is Weber's batting average when it comes to acquisitions over the last few years has been pretty good. Um, you know, I think I think the prime deal in Sweden, which which is two or three years old now, um, looks like a very good deal. I think it's, you know, I don't think it's too early to say that the Revive Health deal seems to have been successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, maybe if you know, maybe if you you do good deals and the deals work out and and the benefits are clear, um, you get more money. That's how it ought to work. Mm. So just to put you on the spot a little bit, um, you said the prime deal was a good one. 
uh, or, or has proved to be a good one. Um, for what reasons? Uh, sorry, do you mean why? Why has it been a good deal? Or mm. um, yes, exactly. I mean, what 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 is it about that deal that you think, uh, you know, has has led to you describing it as a successful one? Because I, I recall when the deal was made, there were some questions asked about whether this would work out. You had a very independent agency from a very independent market. And one of the reasons Prime wasn't acquired by many other agencies is because they felt that while it would bring them a revenue boost, it might not actually improve the, you know, it might not actually fit in and actually improve the offering of the entire network. When it comes to Prime, um... It actually, it actually seems to me to be, you know, one of the. And look, I could be proved wrong about this. Um, wouldn't be the first time, but it looks to me to be one of the the best of both worlds deals where Prime has continued to be Prime, and you know, continues to be one of the most successful market firms uh, in its in its home market, um, Sweden, um, but where. The, the sort of broader creative and strategic resource that came along with Prime has sort of been incorporated into whether Shandwick's EMEA offer generally and has improved particularly their sort of digital and um, creative resources across the, the European network. So I think it's at the very least whether Shandwick has not hindered Prime from growing and Prime has helped Weber Shandwick uh, more broadly um, than many people might have expected when the deal was done. And, and I, suspect, I suspect that a year or so from now, we'll be saying the same thing about Revive Health. You know, the, the, those guys grew by 40% um, in, in the first year post-acquisition, which, you know, at the very least suggests that Weber Shandwick hasn't screwed it up. Um, and, and suggests, in fact, that you know, Revive is getting some benefit. And again, I suspect that the expertise that Revive brings to the table um, has been integrated into Weber Shandwick's healthcare offer more broadly and is helping them more broadly. Than, and that, you know, that's, I mean, that common sense suggests that that's how all successful deals ought to work. But you know, my experience in this business is that it's incredibly rare um, for for that that kind of synergy to happen that quickly. Mm. So Weber buying well, is that down to the fact that um, interpublic group certainly recently is, is comfortable is comfortable buying quality rather than just looking for value, if that makes sense? Um, yeah, absolutely. But I, but I think, I mean, you know, I, I rather think that's the argument that all of the holding companies are making now, is that they want, they want to buy something that that has real strategic value, that either fills a gap in the geographic offer, um, or in the practice area offer, in the, you know, in the expertise area. Um, Mm. that they can't fill themselves but but it's more difficult to do geographically absolutely right? exactly i was yeah. just going to make that point what, because, what often happens is you end up with maybe the fifth best firm in the market 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, in a small market. <laughs> yeah. Well, even in a large market, I mean, mm. you know, you and I could probably both point to a deal that took place this year where um, where that that happened. I mean, large firm, but not a firm with a reputation for great quality. Hmm. I think we probably have to leave then their identity <laughs> <laughs> anonymous. Um, yes, we point. can do that. <laughs> okay. But I think I, I know who you're talking about. Uh, that that's the issue with geographic, and I suspect we can say I think that's been an an issue that has maybe bedeviled is too strong a word, but it's certainly accompanied um, publicist groups acquisition strategy over the last few years. Yeah, I think I mean I I, I think there have been some hits in there, mm. right? I mean there, there there have been some some good deals. Yeah. Um. But when you're when you're filling in dots on a map, sometimes just just having a presence there is important enough as a first step that you know you're prepared to make a compromise on what the quality of the firm looks like. Mm. There've um, been plenty of hits. That, to be fair, I mean, they, you know, MSL just bought North Strategic, which won our Canadian Agency of the Year two years in a row. Yeah, uh, yeah. they bought in South Africa. Uh, Epic, which was our African Consultancy of the Year, um, yep. one could perhaps conclude that they have been paying attention to our agencies of the year, uh, for, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, but, but, and the other thing to remember, I think, is that most of the people they've bought agencies from have stuck around at MSL Group as well, or at least had done until the last couple of years. Yeah, <laughs> that's another story altogether. Um, so coming back to the 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 acquisition trends. One of the things we uh, talked about last year, which was really noticeable, was that the the profile of the acquirer, of the buyer, has changed dramatically from being traditionally um, a holding group uh, to nowadays, often you're seeing so much private equity activity, and of course, increasingly, um, a trend which I think you're probably not unfamiliar with, uh, the, the rise of management consultancies as buyers. I mean, just recently, we've seen Deloitte by um, Register Larkin. Uh, just before that, uh, Karmarama, which owns PR firm Caper, sold to a management consultancy. I mean, that, I assume, is not a trend that surprises you? No, I mean, I'd, I'd like to wait until there are at least three of them before I call it a trend, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a trend when you talk about digital acquisition. Yeah. Um, yes. Then, yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I, so I suspect the um, Kamarama deal, um, you know, PR was sort of an accidental part of that deal and the broader digital proposition Ouch. was what they were really buying. And, and that's no disrespect to Caper, which is a fine firm, mm, yes. um, you know, but it, but, but I suspect that it was the broader digital play um, yes. That, uh, that that got them excited about that. Mm. The Register Larkin deal is is you know slightly more interesting to me because they're buying what is essentially a pure play public relations firm um, with a you know with an obvious expertise in crisis and issues management um, and and sort of corporate reputation management um, that fits right in with um, you know what what Deloitte's is trying to do in sort of the crisis and risk arena. Yeah, uh, yeah. And if that... you think of their their relationships, and when I mean when I wrote um, our analysis on on management consultancies buying up 
digital firms, one thing that was clear is that management consultancies, their relationships on the client side begin with the CEO. Um, right. And, you know, a crisis firm just fits that perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is the kind of deal that I expected to see a flurry of after the FTI consulting financial dynamics deal. Mm. Um, and and obviously it didn't happen then. And, you know, so again, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily expecting half a dozen sort of high-end strategic corporate financial communications firms to find themselves being courted by, you know, Deloitte and Accenture and Pricewaterhouse and all of those guys. Mm. Um, but uh, but it's one to watch because you know you'd like to you'd like to think that there was uh, potential there. And private equity still seems as active as ever. Uh, in particular, two of the biggest deals this year were actually um, acquisitions of minority stakes in um, in acquisitive firms. If that makes sense, so Mountain Gate bought a minority stake in W two O. Uh, W2O itself has been acquisitive yep. uh, both before and after that deal. Uh, and Stagwell um, with a similar deal for Finn Partners. Uh, we keep talking about how at some point PR firms may realize that private equity is not the best bedfellow. That doesn't appear to be happening anytime soon. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think if you're if you're looking to grow quickly um, and, you know, both um, both W2O and Finn Partners have been buying buying up, uh, you know, they, they've been doing a lot of the deals that I referred to earlier as micro deals. Mm. Um, that's probably giving short shrift to a couple of the people that Finn Partners have bought. Mm -hmm. um, but, but they've been very active in the marketplace trying to get big quickly. Mm. Um, and if you want to do that, there are relatively limited number of ways to do it and private equity is probably the most obvious of them i suspect in both cases the ability to uh maintain a measure of control over your own destiny was very important mm. um you know and and, and so you know I, in in the case of both peter finn and jim jim weiss i'm sure both of those guys are hoping that they've got a best of both worlds scenario where they have um, the money to continue or even expand and accelerate their um, acquisition strategy mm -hmm. um, with the autonomy that they have clearly always sought. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, the, the only thing that was sort of slightly surprising to me was that, um, you know, some of the some of the places that got a got a big boost of um, of funding last year, uh, or the year before, which is to say 2015, um, scaled back last year. We didn't see anything, for example, from Teneo. Um, yeah, I was going to say one of the things that's most interesting about your analysis is not just the, the the firms that are on there, but frankly, the companies that are not on there. Um, so Teneo is a, a glaring absence, um, you know, 12 months after they, I think, made it clear that they were on the acquisition trail in a big way. Yeah. Um, probably more than 12 months since the Blue Rubicon deal. Um, Blue Focus, I mean, I think we're now talking a couple of years uh, since Blue Focus last made a international acquisition. Yeah. Um, 
So those are those are two of the big firms that were missing. I mean, Edelman really didn't buy anything last year. If, if you discount Three Monkeys, well, I wouldn't discount Three Monkeys, but no, right. Edelman didn't buy anything for itself last year. Yeah, um, Three Monkeys being a Zeno acquisition. Um, yeah. I, so again, I think. I mean, I think this speaks to my question earlier about the the lack of quality opportunities to to a certain extent. Mm. Right? I mean the, the blue Rubicon deal um was for my money the most interesting deal of last year. Mm-hmm. Um it it was a it was a really high quality acquisition. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it it always made more sense to me from Taneo's point of view than from Blue Rubicon's point of view. Uh, but it was it was clearly the acquisition of a, f- a first rate public relations firm. And if that's what Taneo is looking for, um, then, you know, you could you could possibly say they didn't find anything um, in the in the whole of 2016, like, except for, you know, a and, a and again, I don't mean to be dismissive, but a small firm in Ireland. Right. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, <laughs> is sort of the, the European equivalent of finding the best little agency in Cincinnati. Um, you know, wow. um, but <laughs> I just, uh, I'd just like to apologize to our, to our yeah, Irish uh, listeners uh, at this point. Yes, uh, John Saunders in particular <laughs> don't feel like you need to call in and defend the honor of the Irish of the Emerald Isle. Um, um, but, but, you know, you, you look at you look at a company like Dentsu Aegis, for example, which bought um, Mitchell three years ago, four years ago. And that was supposed uh, to be the start of the, uh, the right. Dentsu PR network. Immediately announced, you know, plans to go on an acquisition binge. Mm. Um, and that binge actually was, you know, one deal four years later. Um, now there's been, you know, there've been internal changes there. There, there are sort of reasons why it hasn't happened, but it also speaks to the fact that, it, it, you know, this is not as easy as you, you like it to be right. It, you and I could sit down with a pen and paper and say, okay, if we were going to do a giant roll up, right. If we were going to buy 20 PR agencies around the world to create a global network that could rival, Maybe not Edelman and Weber Shandwick, that could, but that could rival Golin or Conan Wolf or uh, Porto Novelli, you know, one of the smaller global footprint agencies, mm. or even an APCO, a specialist, mm-hmm. you know, oh, communications. Could right? just, just buy APCO. I mean, you and I yeah. could come up with a pretty good list of, you know, what we regard as quality firms to buy. Yeah. Um, but you know, maybe only one in 10 of them wants to sell. Maybe they want to sell to somebody who looks very different than you and I do. Maybe they have their own, you know, strategic plan. Maybe they think they're worth twice as much as we can afford. Um, Maybe there's somebody who's, you know, almost as big, not nearly as good, who's on the market for a quarter of the price. I mean, Mm. this stuff is not easy. Yeah. No, fair point. And one that you hear a lot in the market. Um, let's touch on APCO quickly. Uh, still, yeah. still unsold. Twelve months after, um, you know, we we wrote a big story about how they were looking for investment, uh, which could involve a sale of the business. There hasn't been any progress on that, as far as um, 
an actual deal, certainly as far as we're aware. Uh, does that surprise you? Um, so it surprises me a little bit because I think APCO is, you know, almost a unique resource mm, in yeah. the market today. I mean, I, you know, I think, I don't think you could, I think it would be incredibly difficult to build an APCO from scratch. You know, what we're talking about here is a firm with a genuine global footprint, um, a strong reputation, um, a terrific leadership team, um, and, um, you know, for, for a firm in that position, a unique expertise, right? There isn't another public affairs driven agency that has anything like the global footprint that APCO has. And there are certainly lots of big players out there who don't have a good global public affairs presence themselves. Oh, um, just, you, you always refer, you describe APCO in terms of public affairs. You know what's going to happen. Which is? Uh, they may... Um, they, they may not take too kindly well, to that but description. But, that, but it's reality, right? I mean, that's, yeah, they, they're, yes, they're, they're stronger than they used to be in corporate reputation and CSR and issues management and all of that stuff. But, they're, but what sets them apart from everybody else in the marketplace mm-hmm. is their ability to do big policy assignments. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. No, I agree. That's why they're not Brunswick. That's why they're not, you know, there are there are half a dozen Brunswicks in the world. I mean, that Alan Parker would, I'm sure, sort of uh, reject that notion. But, yeah. but you know, there, there are half a dozen sort of global financial public relations firms. Uh, what makes APCO unique is it's, that its roots are and, and its, its core competence has always been in the public affairs arena. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to reduce them to just that, but it is the thing that is most, that makes them stand out most in the marketplace. Yeah. So, no, I think your, your point is well made. They are a unique resource. Um, perhaps we'll see something this year. Uh, I think a couple of other companies to keep an eye on. I mean, in addition to Teneo, uh, Blue Focus, of course, you know, we've been hearing about their interest in race point for a while i don't know if that will be consummated i had heard that talks were just still ongoing um, we communications i mean i think it's fairly clear that with alan van der molen in place i mean he's made it clear that he's looking to acquire uh, in the uk you know there's talk that they are looking at three pipe um, there's talk about them looking at uh, firms in india it's pretty obvious, I think, who the good independents left on the market in India are, uh, and then yeah. potentially deals for firms in China and Singapore. Um, so that would make a lot of sense, I think, if you're a firm like we at their size uh, and with their profile. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, I think we're probably, we probably expect more activity from Omnicom. We probably couldn't have really have any less i mean they did although to be fair they did one acquisition in 2016 which uh which still counts as as yeah you know uh, an actual deal and and they that was for a 
healthcare PR firm. Yeah. Um, and they also bought out the remainder of Portland. Uh, but with Karen Van Bergen in place, you'd expect them to be to be more focused on acquisition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, you know, I, I I think if there wasn't more activity um, in the PR sector at the holding group level, you'd you'd start to question sort of what the necessity for that uh, that that sort of layer of overhead and layer of management is mm. if it's there to um, to facilitate I mean obviously there are other ways of growing beyond just acquisition mm. and there are other ways of finding synergies beyond just acquisition uh, but you would expect some sort of activity in the M&A arena mm. uh, and you know it could be more on the M side than the A side um, <laughs> you know because there are certainly there are certainly elements of that organization um, that do not appear to be overperforming as standalone units. Right. Uh, yeah. that, um, I'm trying to be nice here. Um, yeah, you're you know, doing well, so, I think. Thank you. It suits um, you. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, I think, um, I, I think you'd expect to see some activity on either the M or the A or probably both sides of that ledger um, over the next 12 months. Yeah. Uh, Dentsu, it's probably worth noting that Dentsu did buy Perfect Relations last year, which was one of the biggest deals of the year. Um, so yeah, in terms, of, in terms of headcount, it may may actually have been the biggest. Um, yes, in terms of headcount, clearly it is. I don't think. Well, I mean, unless you count the Mountain Gate minority stake in W two O, you know, we can go on about this forever, but. In terms of an actual acquisition, yes, yeah, I think it was the biggest. Um, and then beyond that, I just wondered, finally, my, my, my final uh, observation, be interested to hear your view on this, definitely seeing more activity from what I would call national holding groups. So whether that's a year ago we were talking about Yorente Cuenca, mm -hmm. uh, this year we could talk about Halverson and Halverson, uh, the Swiss yep. group, which has been acquisitive, Farner uh, yep. uh, Sec from Italy has been has has been buying yep. firms, and has since listed. Do Do you expect these companies? I mean, Yorente we've seen be quite acquisitive outside of its home market. But how much of a challenge is it for these groups to actually do deals outside of their native market? Um, you know, I I think I, I sort of come back to, to what I was saying earlier that I still think finding quality, it, particularly when your when your acquisition strategy is geographically driven, um, can be very very difficult. Um, you know, but I, I would be surprised, for example, if we didn't see Lorente um, doing doing more small deals to expand uh, not just their Latin American presence, which is now pretty solid. Um, to add capabilities and to maybe um, create, whether you call them service offices or, or whatever, but to give themselves a presence in important markets that are not necessarily Spanish speaking, right? So, you know, they 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 bought into the U.S. last year uh, or the year before. Um, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me to see them buy a small firm in London, a small firm in China. That that kind of thing, um, mm. you know. And I, I, I suspect Farner 
may have been more sort of opportunistic. The, the deal the deal was there and it gave them a consumer presence that they didn't have. Um, so I'm not sure you'd necessarily see much more than them from them. Uh, National is very interesting to me, the Canadian firm that bought Shift in the US. Yes, um, indeed. You know, I, it is not inconceivable uh, that they might um, they might look at additional deals. Ad factors. I think you'd probably have to uh, yeah. Put on I was gonna say the ad, ad ad factors is interesting because um, Madden clearly has um, uh, you know he's an ambitious guy. Um, his track record over the last two or three years in India is spectacular, but at some point he's going to have to play on a bigger playing field. Mm. Um, and you know, and SEC is interesting. They have been buying up mostly public affairs focused firms. Um, in key European markets, there are clearly still, um, you know, two or three gaps in their coverage of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so it wouldn't be a surprise to see them do a couple of small deals um, mm-hmm. over the next 12 months. And you're right. I mean, I think, you know, I think, I think what you're seeing is the rise of um, alternatives mm-hmm. to... Um, to the big global networks, so yeah, I don't think I don't think uh, Lorente and Cuenca, for example, needs to be able to say, "Look at us, we can compete with Edelman and Weber Shandwick," um, but they need to be able to say, "Look, if if you want, um, you know, if you want to be able to to mount a, a genuinely global campaign that doesn't require." Uh, you know, a foot in every major capital around the world, but a presence in every region. Um, if you want to export a great program from Brazil um, and make sure that, you know, it reaches the Chinese media, uh, you know, just for example, then, then you know, we're an, alternate, we're an alternative to going out and finding a giant global firm where you're paying for a much bigger overhead and you know, you, you, you're a relatively small client. So I think that there, are, you know, people are beginning to see that you don't have to be, you don't have to be sort of a, you know, a one-dimensional local competitor or a giant global competitor, that there are, there are things in between that you can do quite well. Okay, great. And I think we would probably both agree that we're going to see another, another very active year ahead. Yeah, I, I, I see no reason that that um, that things would fall off. Mm. Um, and, and actually, you know, there are there are several people out there who I suspect are quite hungry mm. um, to either continue or get back into the market. So, yeah, I would expect a, a fairly lively year. All right. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for your time, as always. Uh, you can read Paul's M&A review. Um, on our website, and I'd encourage that. It's uh, very insightful. Uh, you can get in touch with us, as usual, on Twitter and Facebook and all the usual methods and means and channels. We'll be back with another podcast next week, I think. We're going to start doing some uh, Davos previews uh, because it's that time of the year. And until until then, thank you very much for listening. Uh, a big, big shout to our production partner, Marketeers, and big up to our sponsor, March. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 
4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 